Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to, to this. Uh, what is this? This is morning, isn't it? This morning to uh, Romans chapter 5. We began a series several weeks ago on reigning in life. And um, I intended to start with a couple of scriptures in the, the beginning of this series. A couple of three scriptures, really three particular scriptures. And, uh, and go from there. And I can't seem to get off those three scriptures. So that always tells me that there's something that the Lord has, something more that the Lord has for us. So uh, Romans chapter 5, Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost, and he's speaking of God's doctrine of two men, the first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus. And everything in, about mankind was wrapped up in those two men. Adam's action of sin and disobedience against God caused all of mankind to be subject to sin and death, and then Jesus' action of Becoming death in our place brought about redemption for all of mankind. And it's received by those who accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And this is what Paul is talking about. So he says in verse 17, he says, For if by one man's, and that's Adam's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So there's a couple of things we can see right off the bat, and and forgive me if I keep repeating myself, but uh, honestly, I don't think these things sink in the first or second or third or even the 50th time we hear them. Because they are so foreign to our, our normal, natural human way of thinking. First thing I want you to see is God planned for man to reign in life. He said, shall reign in life. Now, whatever the, the criteria is, whatever the, the, the requirements are, whatever stipulations he puts on that, please notice God's intent is for man to reign in life. Now, notice that does not say reign in the sweet by and by. See, a lot of times the church world looks at this and they say, well, yes, when Jesus comes, we're going to reign with him. Well, that's true, all right, and I'm glad for that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about man's glorious past. He's not talking about man's glorious future. He's talking about the here and now. Shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice, secondly, he doesn't say Jesus will reign in you. See, so many times people try to put off that, well, yeah, Jesus is supposed to reign in our lives, but I'm just so messed up that it doesn't work real well with me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you reigning in life. Now, the source of that ability to reign, the origin, the, the, the origin of that source, the, the origin of that ability to reign is Jesus Christ. But he's writing to people that are already in Christ. How many of you have made Jesus the Lord of your life? Okay, you're in Christ. Okay, that means he's the source of whatever God has for you, whatever God has planned, whatever he intends for you. Therefore, we could cut off the last part of that verse and understand more clearly what he's saying. Shall reign in life. Because you're already in Christ. Shall reign in life. Shall reign in life. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you satisfied with the degree to which you're reigning in life? Well, if you are, please come up here and teach the rest of us how you do it. <laughs> we've all got certain situations in life. We've all got areas of life that we think, no, you know, I might be doing good over here, but over here, I'm having a real problem. John Lake was uh, was used so greatly 
in, uh, in healings and, and casting out devils and deliverance and different things like that and in uh, the ministry that God gave him not only when he sent him to Africa but also when he came back to America and um, went to Spokane, Washington. Uh, it, this is many years ago. But, um, uh, but, but Lake understood dominion, the ability to reign over sickness and disease like, like few men ever have in the history of the world. I mean, he just took Jesus at his word and began to pray about some things and God anointed him for specific works and, and, and that type of thing. And he just exercised dominion, but he never conquered. He never exercised dominion over finances. Never. At the end of his life, he died penniless. He didn't have anything left. I mean, there was a great legacy of healing. There was a great legacy of healing ministry. But at the end of his life, he had nothing, no inheritance. The Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. In that context, Lake did not live up to the standards of the word. And he said himself, he talked to, to, to men himself in his later years. He said that I've never been able to conquer this. There, there have been things, he gave testimonies of certain times where God would do financial miracles for him. But he said himself, his testimony, personal testimony, was I've never been able to make dominion work in the area of finances. Well, God's plan is for us to reign in life. Now, what does that mean? You reign in this part and I'll reign in this part? No. He's talking about everybody reigning as a king in their own life, having dominion over all the works of the devil in their own life. That has to be God's plan or else this verse of Scripture is wrong. And if this verse of Scripture is wrong, then what else was Paul wrong about? As far as I'm concerned, if this verse of Scripture is untrue, you've got to take away all of Paul's letters. Because how can you trust anything else he said? Shall reign in life. Shall reign in life. God wants you and God has intended for you and God has provided for you the means to reign in life. Now he tells you what the criteria is. He tells you what the conditions are. Much more they which receive two things, the abundance of grace, that means the finished work of Jesus. Take hold of the finished work of Jesus. That doesn't mean just casually know about them. That means take hold of them. Jesus said that um, uh, from in his own ministry, Jesus said, From John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What is he talking about? Is he talking about physical violence? No. He's talking about being spiritually active to take hold of what is yours. Active faith is what's re- what receives. That's how you take hold. You take hold of the things of God by active, vibrant, living faith. Not passive faith. You can have faith, but it not work because it's passive. Now, here's what that looks like. That says, well, I believe God's word is true, where it says Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and I just believe that whenever God wants to heal me, he will. Well, that's faith in what the Bible says, that Jesus did something, but it's passive faith because you're waiting on God and God's waiting on you. See the difference? Active faith says, I believe the word is true. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. Therefore, I take it by faith, just like Jesus said we were supposed to. I believe I receive it now in Jesus' name. That's active faith. That faith receives. The waiting on God to do something doesn't. So he says, much more those that receive the abundance of grace, the abundance, the fullness, the completeness of all that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Number one. And number two, the gift of righteousness. Now, folks, I gotta tell you something. I think the church is more, is weaker 
on righteousness than any other thing. And that's saying a lot. Because there are so many things we could point at the church saying, how weak can it be? But when it comes to righteousness, that's, in my opinion, that's got to be the top of the list. And that is the basis or the, the, the springboard for being weak in every other area. Because if you don't believe you are who the Bible says you are in your relationship with God, how can you believe what the Bible says belongs to you? Or that you will receive what the Bible says belongs to you? Jesus said in John fifteen seven, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. In other words, you receiving the answer to your prayer... What you will to be done in this life. Reigning in life is based on, first and foremost, a relationship with God and your understanding of that relationship. Now, he explains further that that relationship is enhanced or or informed by the Word of God. So you've got to have a relationship with God and a relationship with His Word, but then that brings you to the place where you can ask what you will. He didn't say you'll ask whatever God wills for you. He said you'll ask whatever you will and it'll be done. And then he goes further and says in verse 8 of John 15, he says, herein is my Father glorified. That's what glorifies God is for your will to be done here on the earth. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what about people that will pray outside the will of God? If the Word abides in you, you won't. Because if the Word is abiding or living within you, you're going to be in line with what God's Word says. You're going to be asking. You're going to be desiring. You're going to be seeking after the things that God intends. For his people. Amen. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Shall reign. He didn't say might. He didn't say the chances are good. He said shall reign in life. Folks, there is a place that we can attain to reign in life. I can tell by the looks on some people's faces. Some people are saying, yeah, that's right. And other people are saying, what time is it? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. If this is true, if God's intent is for you to reign in life, and if he has made a way for us to absolutely get there to the place where we reign in life, why in the world would we be concerned about anything else? If that's true. Now, I'm, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm not putting, throwing off on anybody. And, and I'm, I'm looking all around so nobody knows who I'm talking about when I said that. Okay? But even if you knew, it's not a criticism. I've been there myself. I get it. I understand. But if God's word is really true that he wants to, us to reign in life and he intends for us to reign in life and he's provided for us to reign in life, why would we allow ourselves to get distracted by any other thing? What could possibly be more important than that? But see, here's what we've done. We've conditioned ourselves to take the word of God with a grain of salt. Yeah, it's true, but you can't expect to live up to everything. Well, okay, maybe you can't. I can. Or at least I'm growing to the place where I can. I want to take the word of God at face value. I want the word of God to be true. And if I get to heaven and Jesus says, you didn't take that literally, did you? (laughs) Then it's going to be his fault, not mine. (laughs) I'm not expecting that to happen. 
I'm expecting God to pat the people on the back that, that, that took it literally. Said, way to go. Even if you didn't make it all the way, at least you were trying. Good job. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. Shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. Shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. My personal opinion, you judge this for yourself. It seems to me that most people miss the meaning of that verse because they focus on the Jesus Christ part instead of the reigning in life part. And some people would say, well, Pastor Mike, that's sacrilegious. You're blaspheming. You're taking away from Jesus. No, I'm not taking away from Jesus. At least that's not my intent. My intent is to point out that the purpose of the verse that the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to write was to tell you that God wanted you to reign. Certainly it's through Jesus. But don't focus on the Jesus part. Focus on the reigning part. Because that's what God wants you to experience. Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Now you may be thinking, if you've been with us for this whole series, you may be thinking you're going back there. Yeah, I can't seem to get away from there. And God seems to be talking to me more about there than any other thing. Beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, notice the word God it's in the Hebrew is the name Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, I think it's instructive for us to see this. And the earth was, literally the word was means became, without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Isaiah 45, I think. 17 says that God did not create the earth without form and void. He created it. King James says he created it not in vain. That phrase in vain is the same phrase without form and void. So you got the Genesis 1-2 that says the earth was without form and void. And you got Isaiah, I think it's 45-17, that says, if it's not, somebody else look it up and find out, find it where it is. Where it is? 45-18? Okay. Isaiah 45 verse 18. That's in the right neighborhood. It says, God created not the world in vain. He created it not in vain. What does that mean? It literally means that Hebrew phrase in vain is the same Hebrew phrase without form and void. Same exact one. Same exact one. So Isaiah says that's not the way God created it. Genesis 1-2 says it was that way. How did it get that way? If God did not create it, either these are contradictory verses or there's got to be a way for them to fit together. It's the only option there is. Well, okay, let's assume, first of all, that they're not contradicting one another. So if God didn't create the earth without form and void, how did it get to be without form and void? Well, verse 2 says it became without form and void. The best evidence we've got is that Satan... And the, who was the leader of the angels who ruled the, the world that was before is the one that destroyed it. The Bible says, again, I think this is Isaiah. The Bible says that there'll come a time where mankind will look upon Satan and say, is this the guy that caused so much trouble? This puny weakling, nothing of a being is what caused the, caused so much trouble that destroyed the worlds. Destroyed the nations. It indicates that the devil is destroying nations. Now, now, folks, I would submit to you that he is certainly destroying nations in one sense from within, but he's not making the earth without form and void today. So it must be talking about some time in the past. It must be talking about some previous time. 
So the earth became without form and void. The point I want you to see, and the only point I want you to see about this, and I don't care if you believe me about the world it was before. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Jesus doesn't die for them. He died for us. I'm just telling you how this fits. If you want to believe that, that's fine. If you don't, that's okay. I don't care. Be wrong. Let God show you when you get that. I don't care. Suit yourself. My point is, there was something called the earth that God started with. Now, the heavens were already in place. Heavens can't be atmosphere because that's part of what he recreates. So the heavens and the earth, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens had to be the kingdom of heaven where God dwells. Agreed? It doesn't say the heavens became without form and void. It says the earth became without form and void. So heaven has to be the place where God dwells. So God, who lives in heaven, started with this lump of clay called the earth that was once in one form, but now it's in a, uh, uh, it's in a different form. It's without form and void. In other words, it's been basically destroyed. And I want you to read the, along with me. I'm going to skip down, not read the whole thing, but I'm going to skip down a couple of verses. Verse 3, And Elohim said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, And Elohim said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters, and you know that's how it went. Verse 9, And Elohim said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Verse 14, And Elohim said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Verse 20, And Elohim said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly upon the earth in the open firmament of the heaven. You know, that's how it turned out too. Verse 24, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Verse 26, And Elohim said, Let us make man in our own image. And let them, after, excuse me, I left left part of that out. Turn to other scriptures while I'm trying to read. Let me finish this and do the other. Verse 26, And Elohim said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. What opportunity does the earth, the lump of clay, if you will? And and I, I got a, um, I grew up in a church. I don't even know what song it was, but I remember singing all the time. He is the potter, I am the clay. And the idea behind that song was God can make you anything he wants to make you. You don't have any choice in the matter. And folks, that's totally contrary to what the Bible says. Now, I'll accept he's the potter and the earth is the clay. But in that picture, you're the potter's son. You're not the clay. 
Because Elohim said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. Now, likeness is a very interesting word here. Because we think in natural terms. We think God made us to look like him. And you can prove that to a certain degree. When God um, was talking to Moses and Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. He said, well, you can't see my face and live. Well, God must have a face then. He said, no man can see my face and live, but i tell you what I'll do. There's a crack in the rock over here, the cleft of the rock. I'll put you there and put my hand over you, so God must have a hand. I'll put my hand over you and pass by and let you see my back parts. Well, okay, that must mean he has back parts. Now, if he has back parts, he must have front parts. Otherwise, parts are parts. Remember the old chicken commercial they ran for a while, parts is parts? Well, that's not the way it is with God. Parts is not just parts. If he's got back parts, then that must mean there must be a front part to him. It sounds a lot like what man looks like, doesn't it? He's got a face, got a hand. We know the Bible talks about the eyes of God search to and fro throughout the earth, seeking someone that'll, that he can be strong on their behalf. We know that the Bible talks about those things. It talks about out of his mouth flows words and, and that, that change things here on the earth. So we've got scriptures all through the Bible that tell us that man's characteristics, man's natural characteristics are similar to God's characteristics or the way that God is. And the Bible says God is a spirit. God's not a cloud that floats around. God is a spirit. Jesus said so in John 4, verse 24. God is a spirit. So he has a form. That's not a physical form. He's a spirit being. You remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared and everybody was afraid. He said, don't be afraid. They thought it was a ghost. They said, it's a ghost or a spirit. And he said, don't be afraid. He said, a spirit hath not flesh and bone as I do. Not flesh and blood. He emptied his blood out as a sacrifice for us. But he said, I've got flesh and bone. So he has a physical form uh, or he has a form. It's not physical in the same sense that we are, but it's something different than the spirit form that God has. He has what we might assume is a redeemed body. The same thing that we may receive, or maybe it works this way. I assume that it works this way. We'll receive the same kind of body when Jesus comes back for the church that Jesus has now. And if it's not that way, somebody's going to have to tell me how it works. Because that's the best I can figure out from the Bible. But he has a body. He has a form. It can't be a physical body because physical bodies don't live in heaven. So it's got to be a redeemed body. So God is a spirit. He has attributes. He has characteristics. There are things that we can describe of him that seem like man's characteristics or man's form. And so for that reason, I think we think of after his image and after his likeness as being a physical likeness or appearance. And that's not what it means. It's not talking about let him look like us. Elohim is not saying, let us make man and let him look like us. That's not what he's saying. Not what he's saying at all. After his likeness, the word likeness literally means sameness. Sameness. Let us make man after our image in the same form as us. Again, that's not physical form. That means spiritual form. Make him a spirit being the same as us. Now hold your finger here. We'll come back. We may come back. Let me remind you of what Psalm 8 says. Psalm 8 is David speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He begins talking about the things of God, and then God shows him something that happened at the creation. And he says, 
he asked a, a, a great question. Verse 3, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Folks, that's a great question. That's a question that you ought to consider. What is man that God is mindful of him? And the son of man that you visitest him, that you come down to, talk with, lead, guide, and help. Why is man so important? that you would extend yourself to him. Now, the psalmist is asking a question that seems to us, at first appearance, it seems to us, is somebody sitting under a tree saying, wow, the universe is so big and man is so small. God, how could you be interested in us? It's kind of the way it looks, isn't it? It's not what's being said. Let's keep reading. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. You know how we read uh, over in Psalm 1, or in uh, in Genesis 1, every time where it said, and Elohim said, and Elohim said, and Elohim said. Here in Psalm 8, where it says, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, that word angels is the name Elohim. Thou hast made him a little lower than the Elohim. The same Elohim that said, let there be light. Thou hast made him a little lower than that. The same Elohim that said, let there be water above the firmament and below the firmament. Let there be lights in the heavens and all this stuff. That's the same Elohim. Thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim. To what end? For what purpose? And has crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him, man, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 tells us this is not David talking. This was an angel talking that God revealed to David to share with us. In other words, David is telling us what the angels said, not what David is saying. This is not David sitting under a tree saying, wow, the universe is so big and man so small. Why are you interested in us? That's not, that's not what's happening. What's happening is at creation, Genesis 1.26, where God said, Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion. The angels are saying, what is man? You're going to make man? What's man? We haven't had man before. That means, let me take a little side thought here. That means whatever existed between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2, when the earth became without form and void, wasn't man. Whatever was here, we know the angels were here. Lucifer had a, had a throne. He wanted to exalt, exalt his throne above the heavens. He ruled here on the earth. He ruled over something and someone. We know a third of the angels went with him in his rebellion. And the Bible says that he held those captives captive. That means there were beings that were under his control. Now, whatever they were, they weren't man. Now, I don't know what they were. I have no idea. No clue. But they weren't man. I don't know what they were, but I know what they weren't. They weren't man. Because the angels are saying at Genesis 1.26, after the world that was before, that was destroyed, the angels said, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than yourself, God, and crowned him with glory and honor and gave him dominion over all the works of your hands. Folks, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to read anything into this, but you can detent, detect just the slightest hint of maybe jealousy there. Because God is up on this level, 
He made the angels down on this level, and then he made man right up here. Literally, God, Elohim, made man as close to himself as is possible. Now, we have a habit of saying as is humanly possible. And that brings into, into play all the human defects and, and, and possible frailties and, and shortcomings and so forth. This is not human possibility involved here. This is God making man as much like himself as is possible. I can't get away from that. I try to get away from that. I try to study other stuff, and I keep coming back to that. God made man as much as is possible like himself. Now, folks, God can do anything. He's God. He can do anything. So how close does that make man to God? See, I'm using the example like this so you can see what I'm talking about. But literally, it's this. He made man as much to him, much like himself as is possible in the sameness of himself. And what's the first thing he did after exercising dominion to create the world? He said, man, you have dominion over the world. You're just like me. Now, here's a question. When God said, let there be light, when Elohim said, let there be light, what possible resistance could darkness put up? Did God say, did Elohim say, now, darkness, I'm God, so you have to obey me. You ever seen people take a new position at work? They go through this period of time, this transition period of time where they're trying to exercise their authority. They're trying to prove that they have authority. Trying to make sure everybody knows, I, I have authority here. I am the boss. I do have jurisdiction in this area. There's, there's this period of time where, where people try to enforce based on who they are and what they've been given. But then after a while, they get accustomed to wh- what position they have, and then they just exercise it. They don't bother telling everybody who they are anymore. You see this a lot of time when sons take over the positions of the, that their fathers held in companies. The son wants to go in and be the bully to prove to everybody, I'm the son. That's a real blessing, huh? Everybody likes a bully for a boss. But after a while, he accepts, you know, I am the son. I don't have to prove that I'm the son. I don't have to tell anybody I'm the son. I just do what I'm supposed to do. And then he does, right? That seems to me to be the way that the most of the church is trying to exercise dominion. The church is trying to exercise dominion, trying to prove to the devil I've got it. Rather than just accepting, you know, I have it. My point is this. What possible resistance could the earth give to God Elohim saying, let there be whatever? When he said, let the earth bring forth seed, did the earth say, no, I don't want to do that? When he said, let the seas bring forth the fish and the the air bring forth the fowls of the air, did the sea say, I like it this way, I like it, I like being alone. I don't want anything swimming around in me. Did the air say, yeah, those birds, they are, they're messy. Uh, no. He is the potter. The earth was the clay. God's word ruled. And he made the earth subject to his voice. 
The earth obeyed because God said. Now, folks, don't ask me why it works that way. That's just the way God set it up. He just set it up that way. He made everything subject to his voice. He could have made everything subject to his presence. He could have made everything such that whatever he thought, it just happened. But he didn't. He made it so that everything is subject to his voice. His words carry his will. And what resistance is there for the earth? None. Why? Because he's the creator. It's the creation. The creation cannot resist the creator. Satan tried that and it didn't work out real well. He took a third of the angels. He was a created being. He took a third of the angels and said, I'm going to take over heaven. Yeah. You know the picture that the, that the Lord gave me the other day? And it's a simple one. You may have thought of something even better than this. Do you remember the, the Pixar movies Toy Story? We love Toy Story. The trilogy. One, two, and three. Like them all. Well, you remember the, the, one of the, the toys in the, the, the room with the little green army men? Remember those guys? Well, I played with those as kids. I loved little green army men. Man, I had bunches of them. I had a bucket of them. You'd probably buy a bucket for a dollar. And I had them all over the place. And you'd set up battlefields and all this kind of stuff. Well, the smallest kid, even in the Toy Story movies, the smallest kid, the, the little green army men, no matter what their gun was, no matter what, you know, bazooka, whatever it is, no matter what their gun was, they had to be careful of the little kids swatting them away. The smallest kid could swat them away and knock them into oblivion. Right? That's the picture the Lord gave me the other day of, the, of man and the devil. Because God was created here, Lucifer was created here with the angels, and man was created here. As much like God as is possible. Now, that's how we would expect it to be for kids. Little kids could knock green army men all over the place. As an adult, we wouldn't bother to reach down and knock them over. What would we do? We would stomp on them. Now, it's like the little green army men holding their guns up and saying, I'm going to take over heaven. God goes. And what did Jesus say in Luke 10, 19? Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. You know what tread means? Step upon. Walk on them. And over all the power of the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So we see that the earth and everything that is created cannot resist the word of God. It cannot resist God's voice, or uh, let me let me say it this way. It cannot resist God's word when a voice speaks it. Now, now the reason I'm saying it that way is because the earth cannot just not resist God's voice. It cannot resist God's word spoken by man. Because he told man, have dominion. Let me ask you a question. After Adam was here in the Garden of Eden, and not, we don't know how long he was there. The Bible story makes us think that, you know, he was made on Saturday and fell by Wednesday. God had to have time to walk with him in the garden for a couple of days, I guess. You know, but but he fell almost immediately, and I don't believe that's true. We don't have any indication to, to support that. So let me ask you this. As the earth begins to multiply, and, and, and there are more cattle, and they begin to reproduce, and... 
the birds lay eggs and they begin to, to increase and the, the fish begin to increase and all the, the animals of the earth begin to increase. How does Adam call the cows in? How does he get them in? Did God make him a sheepdog? How did he get him in? I can't see Adam getting out there with a stick, whacking them on the rear end, trying to get them to come into the barn. Can you? Now, I don't know if Adam had a barn or not, but you get the picture I'm trying to paint here. How did he get them in? He called them. His voice controlled them. If Adam wanted the birds, if he was sitting at a place and he thought, well, a little bird music would be nice, birds come. How did he get them? He called them in. His voice controlled the earth. Why? Because just as God's word could not be resisted by the creation, neither could man's word be resisted by that same creation. That's the way God set it up. Now, we've got in our minds that that's the way God wanted it to be forever and Adam messed it up. That's not true. The Bible says God did not plan for Adam to be in the Garden of Eden for the rest of of eternity. The Bible says God planned for you for the rest of eternity. For Jesus to live in you. Well, in order for Jesus to live in you, that means Adam had to fall. Jesus had to die, had to offer himself as a sacrifice, and you to be redeemed. Your redemption was God's original plan. It's not that God made Adam fall. He just saw that he would. You see that in your kids. You see your kids are going to make a mistake. You don't will it for them. As a matter of fact, you wish they wouldn't make the mistake, but you can see them coming, can't you? So what do you do? You plan for what am I going to do after they mess up? And then you're already ready. So when the word comes, mom, dad, I really messed up. Yeah, I know. We knew that was going to happen. Don't worry. We've got this in place. We've got a plan already made. That's the way it worked with God and Jesus. God, the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. That, to me, that means Genesis 1-1. That doesn't mean Genesis 1.26. That means Genesis 1.1. Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, God said, Let, we're going to make man. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make man, but you know he's going to mess up. Satan is still around. Satan will deceive him. You know, man's going to be limited because he can't see into the spirit realm. And so Satan's going to take advantage of him and deceive him. But don't worry, Jesus. You're the one that's going to redeem mankind. Okay, Dad, I'm in. That was God's plan. You are the result of God's plan working out. You're not God's plan B. Now, to me, that makes more, that makes it more important that God made man as much like himself as is possible. Because this is what he planned all along. You exercising dominion with the limitations of your flesh. We think we've got to be perfect in flesh so that we can exercise dominion and be worthy of God. That never was God's plan. God's plan was for you to exercise dominion in the middle of Satan's attempted victory. Is this making any sense? See, I'm talking to me. I'm really learning things. God's really showing me some stuff. Um, Oh, dear Lord. Who invented clocks? 
Okay, without turning to uh, without turning to a bunch of scripture, let me mention some things. Mark chapter eleven, Jesus cursed the fig tree. What possible resistance did the fig tree have to offer to the voice that Jesus spoke? Now, God's plan for Adam was to fulfill his fulfill his God's plan in the earth. That's what the talks in the cool of the day were all about. He would find out God's will. He would find out what God intended. He got to know God. He fellowshiped with God. He fellowshiped with God and found out about him through what God told him. In other words, the word of God is what brought Adam in close and closer and closer and closer fellowship with him. Same thing for you and me. It's the word of God that brings us into close fellowship. It's the blood of Jesus that brings us into relationship. But it's the blood, it's the word of God that brings us into close fellowship. Because we find out more about him. How many of you know more about your husbands or your wife now than you did when you got married? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> kind of works that way, doesn't it? You think, oh, I know this person. And then you get married to them. You think, who is this person? <laughs> but you find out through fellowship. You find out. Now you know them more than you did before. It's the same way. It Through the Word of God. Now, we can't walk with God and talk with Him like we do our husbands or our wives. But we walk with God through His Word. It's His Word that tells us who He is. Now, Jesus knew who He was through the Word. Remember, at age 12, Jesus is sitting in the temple when they go to, to offer the sacrifice on, at, um, on the Day of Atonement. His parents leave with a bunch of people, caravan of people going back to their town. And they think Jesus is part of the group. I don't know why they wouldn't have checked on him, but I guess at age 12 they figured he's smart enough to be in with the rest of the group. Three days later, they find out he's not. They go back to Jerusalem. By now, it's been six days. He's sitting in the middle of the temple asking questions of the, the religious leaders that they are astounded by. They can't answer his questions, and he's answering theirs. How? Somebody tell me how. He didn't have the religious training they did. He had the normal training that, that parents gave their children in the Word of God, and, and that's, that was the whole point that God chose Abraham, is that he'll teach his children. The Jews have an, uh, an established system set up where they teach their children the things of God, according to the Jewish law. That's all Jesus knew. He hadn't been to any formal education. His parents were not rich. They hadn't sent him away anywhere. His dad was a carpenter. But his learning of God without the presence of sin in his body apparently opened him up to the ability to learn at, at an at a exponential rate. The Bible or um, medical science tells us that, uh, that we use about 10% of our brains, 10% of our mental capacity. Adam had 100. God didn't make him with any extra, unused. Adam had 100. Well, what did Jesus have? Well, if sin and death is what brought us from Adam's hundred down to our present ten, Jesus, who was born free from the law of sin and death, must have had a hundred too. As a result, his ability to learn, his ability to grow, his ability to comprehend and absorb the things of God is an exponential rate. Now, I personally believe, now I don't have any way to prove this, but you can't disprove it either. I personally believe that when you get saved, Give your heart to Jesus and begin to apply yourself to the word. You can increase that 10%. I think I'm now at about 10.1. 
Some of you don't believe that at all, do you? So what does Jesus do? Jesus operates as man was intended to operate. I do want to show you this. Turn with me over to, uh, um, where is it? Uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 8. I think it's the last part of chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8. Yeah. Matthew chapter 7 tells us some things about Jesus in his earthly ministry. I do know what time it is, folks, and I'm going to try to hurry through this, but I, I, I need to get to a, a, an end point that I have on my heart to go to. So stick with me for another couple of minutes. Notice it says Jesus. Um, well, let's back up to verse 24 because this is, this is really good. Therefore, Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Notice the same storm, same circumstance for both, both parties. Only difference is one chooses to be a doer of the word, the other chooses to not be a doer of the word. They both hear the same word. He that hears and does the word stands. He that hears and does not do what the word says, he falls. Under the same circumstances, the same environment, the same situation. Right? Now notice what it says following this. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. For, here's why, for he taught them I'm reading from the King James as one having authority and not the scribes. Now, the way the King James translates this, it looks to us like he taught them as one himself who had authority. But notice the one word, the word one, O-N-E, is in italics, which means the translators added it. It literally says, for he taught them as having authority. He taught them as having authority. Now, folks, just the, you could go back to, to many other scriptures in the previous two or three chapters. But just the ones that we read, who is he indicating has authority? The individual. He's indicating the individual has authority and that authority is exercised by his choice to be a doer of the word. The word as means the manner to do something. The word having means to hold. Literally, this verse could be translated, for he taught them the manner to hold authority. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them the manner to hold authority. Now, if Jesus is teaching that he's the son of God, if he's teaching that he's the one who has authority on the earth, why are they going to be astonished at his doctrine? They'd be astonished at him, wouldn't they? They would have said, who is this guy? That's what Peter and the apostles said when Jesus calmed the sea, rebuked the wind, and it stopped. They said, what manner of man is this? Yet they've heard him teach about authority. They saw Jesus curse the fig tree. And said, look, Jesus, the fig tree which you cursed is dried up from the roots. What does Jesus do? He turns around and tells them how they can do the same thing. 
He tells them the operation of faith. Have faith in God. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain. In other words, he's saying, just like the tree couldn't resist me, the mountain can't resist you. Why? Because you've been made in the sameness of God. He taught them as one having authority. He taught them the manner to hold authority. He's not going through there telling them, I'm the, thar- I'm the son of God and I'm the only one that can do miraculous works. When somebody came, you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and said, Master, how do you do these things? We know you've come from God because no man can do these miracles that you can do. What did Jesus say? you got to be born again. He didn't say, yeah, I'm the son of God. Don't try this at home. He didn't say that. He said, you've got to be born again. In other words, he's saying the interest into the supernatural is the relationship with God. That's how man regains authority. Why? Because that's how Jesus got it back. It's through his sacrifice. He taught them the manner to hold authority. So what does he do? Chapter 8 is all about, and folks, please understand, the Holy Ghost understands the progression of what he was teaching. Chapter 8 is all about the exercise of authority. Jesus exercises authority over leprosy. In chapter 8, when the leper comes and says, I know you can, I just don't know you will, Jesus says, I will be healed, be clean. Then it talks about the centurion coming and saying, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, but just speak the word only because I'm a man under authority and I know how it works. Folks, if this man did not understand that authority works for mankind, he would not have said Jesus could say it from where he was. He would have said, I've got to have you because you're the Son of God. It's only your touch that can do the work. It's not what happened. Then what happens? Then Jesus goes and lays hands on the sick. He lays hands on Peter's mother-in-law and gets her healed. Proof that God loves mother-in-laws. It's good to know. And then Jesus laid hands on other people, other various sick people that came. What's he doing? He's showing that man has authority. He's not proving that he's the one with authority. He's showing that man has authority, that he's the entrance to the restoration of that authority. That's why he was able to delegate it to his apostles, to the disciples. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and he called his 12 together and he gave them power to, to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and disease among the people. How could they do that? They weren't righteous. They weren't the son of God. How could they do that? Because man was given authority and they're working on his behalf. Jesus, who is the Redeemer, yet to come. He was already on the earth, but the sacrifice hadn't been made. He was the one to restore authority, and just his presence to fulfill the plan of God was enough for him to delegate that authority back to mankind on credit. We get all twisted up in how things have to be done. We gotta lay hands on people, we gotta anoint them with all, we gotta, we gotta say this word, we gotta say it just this way, we gotta use the name of Jesus, we gotta do... the ten lepers that came to Jesus. They said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. He didn't say be healed. He said, go show yourself to the priest. What would we have done? We would have said, oh, we gotta have a healing line. 
But who wants to lay hands on them? My goodness, that's a communicable disease. Might catch something. What is Jesus doing? He's exercising authority over sickness and disease. What possible resistance can sickness and disease put up or offer against the voice of God's word? None. Because God made man a little lower than himself and Jesus is operating on the earth as a man who's authorized and anointed by God. You know, one of my favorite scriptures is where the Bible tells us, I think it's Matthew chapter 17, it tells us about how that Jesus gets himself in a situation that Peter's doing, but that now he owes taxes. You remember he calls Peter and says, what were you talking to the tax collector about? Peter said, well, you know, they're always wanting taxes. He said, well, who owes them, free men or, or slaves? He said, free men. He said, well, then why do you say we owe them? When they asked, do, your, do you and your master pay taxes? Why did you ask, answer the way you did? He said, I don't know. Jesus said, okay, so we don't offend them. In other words, you should pay taxes not to offend the government. That's what the Bible says. Doesn't say fight your taxes. I'm all for minimizing them. But this Christian idea that the taxes are unconstitutional, uh, folks, quit. Quit. I know my people aren't doing this, but quit. It's foolish. Yeah, but the government's wasting our money. What's new about that? Like the tax collectors didn't waste the money in Jesus' day? But anyway, Jesus said, so that we don't offend them. Here's what you do, Peter. Go fish. And the first fish that you take up, when you open his mouth, you'll find a coin in his mouth. Take that coin and pay the taxes for you and me. Now, folks, can you imagine the faith gyrations that people would go through to try to make that happen today? Okay, God, I believe, I believe, I believe that there's a coin somewhere in the ocean. Now, Father, I believe that there's a fish. It's going to have to be enough of a fish to pay, you know, enough to, to hold the coins. But Lord, I believe, send a fish. Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. He exercises authority. What possible resistance can the coin or the fish offer to the voice of God's word spoken? What happens? Peter goes and he fishes. Pulls up the first fish and says, wow, look at there, coin. Okay, just like Jesus said, I'll go pay taxes. Jesus is not agonizing over stuff. He's not taking a knee and saying, oh, Lord, what, Father, what are we going to do? He doesn't curse the victory and say, I believe it's dead. I believe it's dead. I believe it's dead. He just simply exercises authority. The wind couldn't resist him. The water couldn't resist him when he walked on it. Sickness couldn't resist him. Even the fish of the sea couldn't resist him. Sounds like he had dominion. Sounds like he's reigning in life. Doesn't it? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim. 
Folks, we give the devil so much credit for trouble in our lives. And give the word of God so little place of authority in our lives. Now, the fact that the tree didn't die instantly tells us that it doesn't always work instantly. The fact that the ten lepers didn't were healed as they went. They weren't healed instantly. They were healed as they went. Tells us that, that your words are not always honored or obeyed instantly. But folks, even that which seems to us to be inanimate, even that which seems to us to be dead, still obeys. You remember on the on the on Palm Sunday, Jesus goes into Jerusalem? And the people are throwing their clothes, their, their cloaks and the palm branches and stuff in front of him saying, Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the king. Remember the Pharisees? They came to Jesus. Luke 19 says that the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear what they're saying? Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you that if these held their peace, we would have to have a Jesus culture concert right here. No. It doesn't take professional musicians. It doesn't take professional worship. By the way, anytime, that's what happened with the Pharisees. Anytime you take something that is of God, intended to be of God for the service of people and turn it into business, it loses anointing. That's what the Pharisees were all about. They were all about business. Christian music has become big business. But if you look at the New Testament, the New Testament talks more about worship from the heart, specifically expressing spirit from your spirit by speaking in other tongues and singing in other tongues than it does any kind of corporate worship. And I hate to bust some people's bubble because I know this is a big thing for some people. Some people are just sure we're going to win the world with Christian concerts. It's not going to happen. It's not the way it works. It's just not the way it works. And the people that complain that we don't do enough about worship are generally the ones that won't spend time praying in tongues. You know why? Because praying in tongues makes you agreeable. It cuts out all that complaining stuff in your life. It's just not the way it works. What's happened nowadays in the, in the modern day church, what's happened is that so many people are trying to substitute what they call, and, and this is a common phrase, I guess, this worship experience. And what worship experience has turned out to be for so many people is just a feeling. We get together and we get excited. Look at all these people. Look at the music. It's professional music. It's great music. Oh, man, we feel so great. Well, folks, a feeling never brings you to close to God. You can leave that worship experience, whether it's in church, whether it's in a concert or whatever, you can leave that worship experience. And if since the Word of God is the only thing that brings you closer to Him, you leave that worship experience, and it won't bring you any closer to God than you were when you went in. You may feel better. You may have been more excited but it won't have any lasting impact. Worship is supposed to be from you, your heart. Literally, Jesus is saying, if these held their peace, the rocks themselves would cry out. Jesus is saying, any old rock will do. So you can see God's not against rock music. It's got to be the right kind. What's he saying? He's saying something that is as dead as a rock would speak. Why? Because it would be responding to God's voice, God's word, or God's plan. How, therefore, can sickness or lack 
or anything else that you're facing in your life, in your situation, resist when you speak the word of God over it. How is it possible? You don't have to try to make it happen. You don't have to try to convince the devil that you really believe it's going to happen. It is the voice of God's word spoken that changes things. And that's what Jesus explained when he cursed the fig tree. Luke 17 says it this way. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this sycamine tree, be plucked up by the roots and it should obey you. Should meaning will. And it will obey you. I didn't know trees could hear you. But they can. I didn't know mountains could hear. They can. Because God made them by His voice, by His Word. Therefore, everything in creation, whether it was the, whether it was the original creation or Satan's perversion of that creation, meaning everything, the works of God or the works of the devil, is subject to the voice of God's Word. Nothing can resist you when you speak God's word, understanding your authority. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Literally, little lower than Elohim. God made you as much like him as is possible. And he expected you to exercise dominion. Folks, everything about Jesus restoring dominion is represented in this communion. The Bible says that when Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he arranged for the Passover meal to be eaten with his disciples. And he said to them, I have been looking forward to this with great desire. Why? Because he knew what it represented. He knew it represented the life of God coming back to mankind so that man could be restored to that place of union with God. Not get back to Adam in the Garden of Eden, but God's original plan being fulfilled. You've got more because of the Holy Spirit in you and upon you than Adam ever had. You've got more because your righteousness is through the redemptive work of Jesus than Adam ever had. And that was God's original plan. Jesus knew that's what this represented. Now, the toughest days for him were still ahead. But he desired to experience it with his disciples so that they would know what God had provided for them. That's what this bread, which represents his body, and this juice, which represents his blood, stands for. It stands for your redemption. It it stands for your restoration to authority. It stands for that which provides you the ability to reign in life. Amen.